0: The first scripture reading is from Isaiah chapter 49 verses 1 through 6. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored to no purpose, I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due to me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. The next reading is from Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 52. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself." Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written, The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy.
1: Final reading is Acts chapter 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he'd said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is God's word.
2: Thank you for reading. Well, we got our money's worth in terms of Bible readings today. I uh, do keep open Acts chapter 1, verse 1 to 11. That's the passage we're going to be considering together now. And as Mark mentioned earlier, this is the beginning of a series through the book of Acts uh, for the next four weeks. We'll be looking together and then we'll take a break and come back to it. Well, let me pray as uh, as we begin. Our Father God, we praise you that you have made clear what you think about the Lord Jesus, that uh, he is, as we've prayed already, the one who reigns. And we pray, therefore, that uh, your powerful spirit would be among us, that you would bring the testimony about your son Jesus to us this morning with power, that your word would come to us not as the words of men, but as the words of God. And we pray that you would do so for the glory and honor of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Friends, my job today is, with God's help, is to raise our expectations. It is to raise our expectations. It's not to manage them. I know it's a dangerous thing to raise expectations, but I don't want to manage our expectations. I don't want to qualify them. I don't want to defer them into the future to say that there's something to be hoped for in the future and that day will come. I want to say there's a reality in the present that means we should raise our expectations. In particular, I want uh, to raise our expectations that you can now have access to the purpose of God and the power of God on earth. That it's possible now to have access to the purpose of God on earth so that you can line your life up with it and it's possible to have access to the power of God so that you can line your life up with it. That's what I want to do today. Now, we might say, well, on what basis would you do that? Well, I feel bold to do that, because that's precisely what Luke does. He raises our expectations in these verses, chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. The air is thick with expectation in these verses. Expectations are at fever pitch. Everyone in these verses is time conscious. Everyone knows that not long from now, something big is about to happen. So for 40 days, Jesus speaks to his apostles. And in Bible world, well, after 40 days, you know something very big is going to happen, like Moses going up on a mountain for 40 days. Something big happens, God's kingdom breaks in. Or Jesus says, well, in a few days you'll be baptized by the Spirit. Not many days from now. People are obsessed with timing. Something big is about to happen in verse 6. The apostles then respond to him and say, is it now at this time? Is the time now that you're going to restore the kingdom. So expectations are very high. They're at fever pitch. And they are expectations about something in particular. The expectation is that God at last is going to become king on the earth, that God is about to become king on the earth. It's the expectation of divine government on the earth. Now, of course, as soon as I say that, we have to say, well, of course, God's always been king. He made the earth and everything in it. So when the psalmist says, God reigns, the Lord reigns, Well, of course it's true, he's never been off the throne of the universe. But we have to say that since Genesis 3, and the fall of humankind, well, his reign has been contested, it's been rebelled against, it hasn't been visible. So if the Bible began and the world began with the purpose to make the whole world a garden, a fruitful garden, filled with the glory of God, reflecting the image of a great life-giver, well, actually, since Genesis 3, it's been more like a desert, And uh, if you're Christians, uh, you know that through the Bible, there's this whole promise going through the Old Testament that one day God will pour out his spirit. The spirit of God will gush forth from the hand of God and turn what is a desert into a fruitful garden. And God will become king on earth. And that will be the sign that he has taken over the earth again. And Luke says that is about to happen. That is about to happen now. And if those are high expectations, I wonder whether they're met with us this morning with low expectations, our low expectations. We perhaps still flounder around wondering, what is God's will? What is his purpose in this world? And how can I live a life that's lined up with God's purpose? What is the Father's will for this world and for my life? Or perhaps we feel ourselves still in a spiritual desert. And the sign of this would be that all we see, all we see is the stubborn resistance of the human heart. So our own human heart, we see a great inertia against change. Things haven't changed in years, we think. We feel like we're in a spiritual desert. Or we see the this, this stubborn resistance of other human hearts around us, or of human hearts put together in aggregate, like civil authorities, government authorities, whole cities, workplaces. And we think, will the gospel of Jesus Christ really take root in soil like this? So we end up thinking to ourselves, well, 21st Early 21st century Christians, we have to plough the, the a difficult field, dry soil. Is the gospel really going to take roots here? We look around at the city of London, captivated by sex and power and money, and we think, will it really take root here? And uh, in the face of this, the book of Acts that we're beginning this morning, it could feel like a bit of a taunt. Because, of course, the book of Acts is the book about how weak people became bold, how cowards ended up changing the world. How the gospel, it it was catapulted into corridors of power before kings and rulers. And uh, in effect, the apostles turned the world upside down. That was one of the charges that was brought against the Christians. You're turning the world upside down. And we look at that and we see that um, the gospel was powerful. It moved powerfully everywhere it went. broke down barriers and boundaries. And it feels like a bit of a taunt. We look at the book of Acts A bit like looking through a glass window. We can see in, and we can see that they believe the same gospel of Jesus Christ that we do, but yet it seems very far away. We can't access that powerful witness. About 18 months ago, I stood in this church with an African brother. He was visiting, he was visiting the UK, he'd been here for a few weeks, and we were chatting. And I said, well, what are your reflections on, as you look at the church in the West, you've been here for a few weeks? And he said, well, I think it's the the same need as the same need for the church in Africa. We need to understand somehow how to get back to the early church, the power of the early church. When you look at the Acts of the Apostles, you see there was the church moving forward in power. We need somehow to get back to that. But the question is how. What triggers the power of heaven coming onto earth such that the gospel of the Lord Jesus breaks boundaries, moves with power, how can we, as it were, tap into that power? Well, I want to encourage us this morning that uh, the book that tells the story of the world being turned upside down by the gospel of Jesus, that book begins in uh, verses 1 to 11 telling us what gives that gospel motive, force, and power. And uh, the answer is it's something perhaps puzzling to our ears. It is quite simply that Jesus is going. He's leaving. He's leaving. He's leaving. Just in terms of how this passage breaks down, there are two ideas, really. So in verses 1 to 3, Jesus, who suffered and who rose and is on his way to heaven, Jesus is going. That's the subject of verses 1 to 3. And then from the end of verse 3 down to verse 8, it's all about the kingdom coming, the Spirit gushing forth, being sent by the Father to earth. And then after verse 8, we're back again to Jesus being taken up the account of his ascension being taken up to heaven in verses 9 to 11. So we have Jesus being taken up, the kingdom is coming, and then Jesus is taken up. And the key is to understand how those two things relate. The key is to grasp that the kingdom is coming because, precisely because, Jesus is going. You see, we usually read this passage and uh, we're almost a little bit embarrassed about it. Because there are lots of expectations of the kingdom of God coming in power. And then Jesus leaves seems like it's an anticlimax, climax. But as we come to verses 1 to 3, we see that actually Jesus' is going is what creates the climax. Because Jesus is on his way to heaven, that's precisely why we can expect God's kingdom to come on earth. Have a look at verse 3. So do you see Jesus is speaking to the apostles, and he ends up at the end of that verse, verse 3, talking about the kingdom of God, the reign of God breaking into earth. He's going to go on and talk about it in verses 48. But but what triggers his talk about the kingdom of God, do you see, in the first part of verse 3, is simply the fact that he who suffered and died is now alive. He's alive. This leads to talk about the kingdom. What has triggered this feverish expectation that the reign of God is about to come in is that Jesus who suffered is alive and is about to go to heaven. God's kingdom is on its way. Because Jesus of Nazareth has traveled via the cross and an empty grave now and is on his way to heaven. That is what raises expectations that the kingdom is coming to earth. Now, why is that? Well, it is because as Jesus suffers, as he dies, as he's risen again, as he shows himself, proves that he is alive, we begin to understand that God's king is here. We begin to understand that Jesus is on a trajectory that God has always said and always promised will be the mark of him taking over the world. It is the sign that God's king is about to be enthroned. Do you see, uh, this is the testimony in verse 2 that God is determined to preserve on earth. This is the testimony he wants to preserve. Even the commands given by Jesus to the apostles before he's taken up, but they're given by and through the Holy Spirit. Jesus, for 40 days, repeats with them, proofs again and again that he is alive. This is the testimony that God wants to preserve on earth. It's vital that they know he has been risen, because it's going to be vital that the world knows that Jesus is risen again. So this is the testimony of the highest order of importance. If you have this testimony about Jesus Christ, that he suffered, he rose, and he's ascending to heaven, well, you've come face to face with the power of God. Well, how can that be? Well, let's look at verses 4 to 8. For they are all about the kingdom of God's about to come on earth, precisely because Jesus is about to be taken up. Now we get that 40 days' worth compressed into one, or rather Luke selects just two exchanges in these verses, two episodes that will tell us what these 40 days were all about, that will tell us what it means that Jesus was taken up. Do you see there that the only command that is given in these verses is to wait? To wait in Jerusalem. Stay where you are. Wait for the promise of the Father. Don't leave Jerusalem. Just wait. And you will receive the Father's gift. There is a gift that the Father possesses, the Spirit of God that will come if they wait in Jerusalem. Jesus says that you know what this gift is. I've I've already spoken to you about it. John the Baptist spoke to you about it. Do you remember at the beginning of the Gospels? Verse 4, John baptized with water, but in a few days, Jesus says, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You know that God has become king, that his his king is in heaven, if you like, when God's spirit is poured out on earth. And John the Baptist, remember, he had that that picture ministry, that visual aid ministry, where he, he, he drew people out into the wilderness, into the Jordan, And he baptized them, but he only baptized them with water. And the great difference between John and Jesus was, of course, that John could baptize with water and make people wet, but Jesus, his baptism was with the Spirit of God, with a powerful spirit. Now, without taking a breath, Luke then moves on to the second exchange in those 40 days. Verse 6, so when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Now we're supposed to overhear the question and the response that Jesus gives to that. It's to clarify for them and for us exactly what is happening. So they ask a question about the kingdom. Everyone's talking about the kingdom here. But the apostles ask a question about the kingdom in terms of time and in terms of Israel. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of it to Israel? at this time at Israel. They ask in terms of time, and Jesus answers in terms of power. They ask in terms of Israel, and Jesus answers in terms of the whole world, so the ends of the earth. Verse 7, he says, it's not for you to know the times and dates the Father has set by his own authority. It's true then and true now that if you want to line your life up, with the purpose of God, don't expect details of a date. You know, throw away the calculator or the calendar. It's not about predicting or, or seeing a window into the Father's hidden timing. No, that's not how to spot the kingdom of God. No, rather, Jesus answers and says, no, it is. It is when in par, in par, it is shown that Jesus is king over the whole earth. When in par, Jesus is shown as king over the whole earth. I want us to pause for a moment here on um, chapter 1, verse 8. Because God is testifying to us here that actually all his purpose and all his power in becoming king on earth comes through Jesus of Nazareth, who is about to be lifted up. So uh, it's sometimes said that uh, verse 8 gives uh, a bit of a program, an outline for the book of Acts, and that's certainly true. So Jerusalem, the gospel in Jerusalem, the gospel then spreading to Judea and Samaria, And the gospel spreading to the ends of the earth, the center of the world, Rome, and to other places, far-flung places, well, it's the sign that the gospel is advancing in precisely the way that chapter 1, verse 8 talks about It is, if you like, the program for the journey of the gospel through the book of Acts, and you can chart the progress of the gospel uh, by using this program, this plan, this outline. But it's much more than that as well. Because it's not just about geography, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, these are categories that are loaded. I mean, in the 1980s, you might, you might have said, well, I, I traveled from West Berlin to East Berlin. And that would tell you something about geography. But, of course, it was much more than that. You were crossing a boundary, crossing an obstacle that divided the worlds. And that is true here as well. So the point here is that somehow God's kingdom, God is going to become king on the earth such that actually there will be no exceptions to his authority, his reign. The gospel will move from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. Will, if you like, the old people of God, divided since um, Solomon's son reigned, somehow reunited, and then to the ends of the earth, which is really a way of saying everyone who's not a Jew, the Gentiles, the rest of the world. So those are loaded categories. But there's one more thing to say about chapter 1, verse 8, which is that These things, that the gospel can go to these things, is the sign that God's servant, Jesus Christ, is about to be lifted on high. We had read uh, Isaiah 49, verses 1 to 6. It's one of those enigmatic songs of a servant that appear through the later chapters of Isaiah, where God promises that he will set a servant, a suffering servant, on high, from whom the Spirit of God will be poured out from on high. And because that servant is set on high, well, the gospel will go everywhere. Because he's been placed that high by God, well, the gospel can go that wide. So you remember in that reading, Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, it's spoken of um, by the servant. It'll be too small a thing to just bring back the tribes of Jacob. The gospel will go to the ends of the earth, no exceptions. That's the kinds of expectations we're to have now that Jesus is being set on high. And so you see, that's precisely why verses 9 to 11, Jesus being taken up, follows a verse such as verse 8. Because Jesus' rightful reign is the whole earth, verse 8. Because his rightful place now is on the throne of the whole earth, verses 9 to 11. I want to pause here and just, uh, address a bit of a puzzle or a paradox that we sometimes think Jesus' bodily absence recorded here in verses 9 to 11 it means really that he's gone away and is a bit irrelevant for a time. And when he returns, he'll become relevant on earth and everyone will realize that he's relevant, that he's powerful, that he is the king. But we think really that uh, it's a bit of an anticlimax that he's gone away. It's a disappointment of expectations, a bit like an aborted landing. God's kingdom is going to come to earth. Jesus came, oh, and then he's, he's taken up for a bit longer. Not quite yet. Have to circle for a bit longer and then he'll return. But definitely not. You see, in verses 9 to 11 that Jesus is now absent, that's the very condition, the very requirement, the guarantee for us that he is relevant and powerfully reigning. In fact, no testimony about Jesus Christ could ever have come to us. We could never be gathered like this without the powerful testimony of the reigning Jesus coming to us. We're witnesses to that ourselves, just sitting here. And in verses 9 to 11, we are given the proof that God is acting right now to take over his reign over the whole earth in Jesus Christ being taken up. The signs are there in verses 9 to 11. So the cloud, this is, if you like, the first sign of glory, the cloud after Jesus' resurrection. The first sign of glory, it's a sign that Jesus is entering into the heavenly place. cloud's an end-time symbol. Daniel 7, verse 13. They're at the Mount of Olives, which was going to be the the end-time place of God's reign, Zechariah 14 verse 4. And then the ascension, Jesus being taken up is the very guarantee of his return. The proof and guarantee that he's coming back is that he was taken up to heaven. That is the place where God's final action, from which God's final action will occur. But actually, if you, if you want one telltale word in verses 9 to 11 that guarantee that Jesus reigns over the whole earth, it is that one word, heaven. It's mentioned in verse One to one and two. It's mentioned twice in verse eleven. And of course that's a puzzling word for us because that's the very reason we think Jesus is irrelevant. Because we think heaven is the great place of indifference to the earth, the great place of irrelevance. So the heavenly minded person is of no earthly use. And we begin to wonder whether a, a heavenly located Jesus is of no earthly impact. But the key to being certain of God's power, of his presence, his powerful presence on earth and in our life, is the very fact that Jesus has been lifted to the throne of the whole earth. The heaven is the place that rules the earth. It's the place that uh, earth comes under the authority of. So that in Acts, as we go through, we see that every nation on the earth is described as every nation under heaven. Because if you're in heaven, you're over the whole earth. And that is precisely where Jesus is going now. So for Jesus to be taken to heaven, it is to be taken to the throne of the whole earth. It is the very guarantee that he rules over the ends of the earth. So we're to understand uh, Jesus going to heaven, not so much as a departure, but as a recognition now of who he really is. Who he really is. Uh, So then, faith today, our faith, is to receive raised expectations of being able to place ourselves at the very center of God's plan and the the very promise of the Spirit's power as we grasp that Jesus has been lifted up, as we recognize that Jesus has been taken up to the highest place possible. But uh, I want us to consider together, if those are high expectations, some of our low expectations that we might raise them, that we might search out our low expectations, expectations that, if you like, pretend that Jesus hasn't been taken up, that he hasn't been raised on high. And uh, the first is when we pretend that uh, the Father's will still remains hidden. We pretend that his will remains hidden. It's one of the most common questions we could ask as Christians. What is the Father's will for my life? What is his purpose in the world? And how can I line up my life with it? But in the raising of Jesus from the dead, in the exaltation of Jesus to his right hand, the Father has shown his heart and his will for your life or well, for everyone's life. By accepting Jesus being lifted up and high, you expect to find yourself at the center of the Father's plan and purpose and at the center of his power. As this book of Acts unfolds, it tells us to ascribe the same honor to Jesus Christ that the Father has ascribed to him by lifting him up to heaven. It's interesting, as you, as you read through these verses, Jesus doesn't exalt himself. Everything's in the passive. He's taken up. He's taken up to heaven. Even when he describes uh, how the, the, the baptism of the Spirit will come, he doesn't say, I will baptize you with the Spirit. He says, no, you will receive, passive, the Spirit's, uh, the Spirit's baptism. He's not exalting himself. Again and again in these verses, we see that no, God is exalting him. The Father is determined that the Son be in the highest position possible. And so we are to lift our hearts to see Jesus as raised as high as the Father has placed him. So if you want an unmistakable sign of the Father's will and purpose, you're to look at Jesus being lifted up, being taken up to the highest place. There's no division between the plan of God the Father and the exaltation of Jesus to his right hands. So there's to be no debate in our minds that we can give Jesus too much honor. No, the Father is determined that he received the highest place of honor, exalted at the Father's right hands. That is to line ourselves up with the authority of the Son. We'll see in a couple of weeks it is to enjoy the forgiveness that only comes from the exalted Son. So this morning we're to see that the Father has, as it were, given us a compass point for our life on earth by raising Jesus to heaven. Anyone who wants to claim that their life is approved by God well, has to begin by saying, "Well, no, I believe, I accept Jesus as Lord, the one approved by God." But uh, there's another low expectation that I think we have that perhaps is a sign that we haven't grasped that Jesus has ascended on high, and that is that uh, we see only around us the stubborn resistance of the human heart. I mentioned it at the beginning. But all we see is immovable obstacles, inertia, indifference that cannot be overcome. We see that uh, when human beings club together in workplaces, in whole cities, in government authorities. But Jesus being taken up guarantees that it is possible for the power of the Spirit from heaven to come to people on earth. Do you see the obedient response of the disciples uh, in this passage? It's to wait to wait in Jerusalem. That's precisely what they do. They take Jesus at his word that as he goes, the Spirit will come. They expect that because he is going, the Spirit is going to come. Now, we're not to wait. They wait because the Spirit hasn't yet come. We live after Pentecost. The Spirit has come. The Lord Jesus has poured him out upon the earth, upon his people. We are, if you like, people who thought we were naked and discover that we are clothed with power. We are clothed with all the the power of the Spirit of God, awash with the powerful presence of God, now that Jesus has ascended, now that he has been lifted on high. So to see and expect only stubborn resistance in our hearts, in the hearts of others, in the boundaries that we see built up around us in the world. Well, that is, if you like, to pretend that we're still in a desert when in fact we are awash with the Spirit's presence, the powerful presence of the risen Jesus. There is no Christian here today, no Christian gathering anywhere in the world today who is not a Christian because of the powerful, Spirit-backed testimony about Jesus Christ, the risen Jesus. But if faith expects the Spirit's power from Jesus who is lifted up, well, uh, I think we also have low expectations about Jesus' reign on earth. We parcel up the word. We think, in effect, that Jesus doesn't yet reign over the whole earth. Now, I think, uh, I think this is a, a common mistake. It's probably an easy mistake to make, in part, because of the balance of teaching that perhaps we have in our churches, which is that, uh, well, we teach a lot about Jesus' death. We think a lot about his resurrection. We think a lot about his return, but we miss out his ascension. Somehow he needed to be taken up so that he could come back from heaven. But we don't talk much about it. But what we lose by not talking about that, by not grasping that, is we don't recognize that Jesus is already sovereign over the earth. Jesus has already taken over legitimate authority and sovereignty over the whole earth, over every person, every authority, every power, every country, every nation, every tribe, every family. That has already happened. He's been lifted up as high as heaven and we saw that because of that he's got authority over the ends of the earth. And so I want to encourage us therefore not to make exceptions of ourself as if to say, well, we don't come under the authority, the legitimate authority of Jesus Christ. We do because he has ascended. We're not to make exceptions of others. So I think we're prone to make exceptions of Of authorities, government authorities, people in authority. We make exceptions of of those who set themselves up as enemies of the gospel, those who are just plainly indifferent. We make exceptions of other races, other classes, of the cynics of the gospel. But later on in the book of Acts, when the apostle Paul is on trial, he gives us a good example. He's being quizzed by someone in authority and he says, do you think you can convert me, apostle Paul? Do you think you can convert me in a couple of hours? I paraphrase. And Paul says, oh, I wish that everybody was like me. Because you see, no one is accepted from the authority of Jesus Christ. It's possible for anyone and everyone to be saved to receive the salvation of Christ. Paul says, oh, I wish that anyone was like me, everyone was like me, except for my chains, for I'm a prisoner. So that's the kind of certainty we're to have today. We're to accept these raised expectations that Luke gives us, that God gives us. And we might say, well, what's, I mean, what difference does that make? Well, we've seen what happens in the book of Acts. As people grasp that Jesus is lifted on high and receive his spirit, that know they've received his spirit, well, the world is turned upside down precisely because we line ourselves up with the purpose of the Father. We receive his powerful spirit. And we know that actually the whole world has been turned into a theater of witness because Jesus has already become king over the whole earth. Let's pray together as we finish. Our Father God, we praise you that you haven't hidden your purpose and will. We praise you that you've revealed it clearly in the honor you've shown to the Lord Jesus, vindicating him by raising him from the dead, setting him on high at your right hand in heaven. We praise you that you have handed to him authority over every nation and tribe. We praise you that from him comes the spirit that he is now able to pour out, that he has poured out upon the earth. And we pray, Father God, that we would uh, lift up the Lord Jesus in our hearts precisely the way that you have lifted him up. And we pray, Father God, that the result would be that we in our generation testify powerfully to the Lord Jesus, to any and all. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.